Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 4 in just a little bit. Hold your Bibles in your lap this morning, you're going to need them. Counterfeit money is deceptive because it looks so much like the real thing. Counterfeit religion is the same way, carries that same kind of deception. Often the doctrinal currency looks so much like Christianity that it's almost impossible to tell them apart, at least to an untrained eye. And so what Peter tries to do in chapter 2 of 2 Peter is to train our eyes so that we might spot the bogus heresy before it becomes widely circulated within the local church. And that's not an easy task. There was a, there was a second century church father by the name of Irenaeus. And listen to what he said about spotting heresy. This is from the second century. Era indeed is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed it should at once be detected. It is craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. In other words, when you look at heresy, when you look at false teaching, oftentimes it's dressed up so pretty that it looks more true than the, than the truth itself. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, before we get into the actual text, I want to look at two very different but absolutely reliable facts about God that you need to settle in your mind this morning. One of those facts was written by the prophet Jeremiah. He's wandering around through the ruins of Jerusalem, and he's stumbling across the rubble of destruction in the city. He falls on his face before the Lord, and in Lamentations chapter 3, he just cries out to God because of all the destruction that he sees, all the, the, the fact that the city's been destroyed. And the thing that lifts him up, I guess, in the midst of that destruction around him is a truth about God, and it's a memory that comes to his mind. So in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21, you know that passage, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Though Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So that is the picture of God that everybody wants to hang in their house over the mantle in the living room. It's a picture of a loving father. It's a picture of a loving father who sends his kindness just as faithfully as the sun rises in the morning. And that picture of God is boldly framed in the Scripture. But there's a second picture of God that is also framed in the Scripture, one that we would prefer 
to hang uh, that picture. We want to hang it in some infrequently trafficked hallway that nobody ever sees. That's the picture of the judgment of God. So the Bible very clearly teaches that God is a God of compassion, but it also teaches that God is a God of judgment. In Romans chapter 1, after a fairly lengthy discussion about human sin, the apostle Paul informs us that God is not a boys will be boys kind of deity. He is a God of righteousness. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of judgment. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So the Bible is very, very clear when it gives to us the picture of God. God does not look the other way when it comes to depravity. He takes sin into account, and he takes sin into account with pinpoint accuracy. One day, God is going to open the ledger of human behavior, and there is going to be a day of reckoning. The bills of our bankrupt lives are going to come due. Hebrews 9:27. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, what? Judgment. So there are two truths about God that are taught in the Scripture. Both of those truths come to play in the text that we're going to read in 2 Peter. The compassion of God, his mercies are new every morning. Thank God for his compassion. That's the picture everybody in the world wants to present of God all the time. God is a God of love. God is a God of compassion. Uh, but there's also the side of God that says he will not overlook the sin of man. That is his judgment. You're going to see both of those things in this passage. Second Peter chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse number uh, 4. Let's stand in honor and reverence of the reading of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Watch what he says. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and he did not spare the ancient world, but he saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked." 
For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So he started out in verse 9, if God, right? Verse 9, then, this is an if-then clause. So if God did that, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So you see in that passage both the judgment of God and the compassion of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that as we examine these three illustrations that you give in this passage and we think about what's going to happen to the heretics, we will be reminded that those who know you in fullness and completeness through Jesus Christ will be saved, we'll be taken care of, we will be delivered. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter is deeply disturbed by all the false teachers that are in his day. And so he speaks very solemnly about the punishment that they're going to get. He reminds us in this passage, you remember from last week, the first three verses of chapter 2, that appearances might be deceiving that you, you can't judge the book by its cover. You can't just accept something because a person claims to be Christian. God is not idle. God is not asleep. And so he says in that passage last week, just because these false teachers get away with it, just because they get away with it for a few years, doesn't mean that they're going to escape punishment from it in the end. And so to illustrate these false teachers, Peter turns to Old Testament history. And he reminds us of three different groups who disobeyed the Lord. And they were severely judged because of it. The first one is the angels who sinned. The second are the people of Noah's day who were destroyed by the flood. And then the third illustration that he uses are the citizens of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And since God dealt harshly with both heavenly creatures and earthly creatures who deliberately disobeyed him, who deliberately uh, disbelieved in him, then he concludes the passage by saying, you can be absolutely sure that not only is God going to deal with the heretics, but he's able to deliver you out of whatever torment you may have to go through. So even in the midst of the bad news of the judgment of God, Peter calls to attention of those who may be reading and listening to him the good news, and the good news is if God doesn't forget what the bad folks have done, and if he's not going to let them get away with it, and he's going to judge them, surely he ought to be able to deliver you from whatever it is you're going through in your life this morning. Let's look at them. So verse 4. The angels who sinned. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, let me paraphrase that verse for you. Peter basically says to us, do you think for one minute that you are any better than the angels who fail? 
They've been cast down to hell. They are awaiting their time to stand before the eternal judgment bar of God, and they're going to experience his wrath. Do you think you're any better than that? In light of that fact, it would be a monumental miscalculation to believe that if God dealt that way with heavenly beings who were created, now listen, angels do not have the opportunity to be saved. They were created in heaven. They don't get the same opportunity that you and I get to either accept or reject the Lord. They were in heaven all along. And yet they chose to rebel against God, and the Bible says he kicked them out of heaven. And so Peter says, do you think you're any better than that? Well, who are these angels that he's talking about? Take your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, I want you to look at this. Because there are so many people today who say, well, I, I, how did the angels, what, what is, what's all this about angels who are reserved for judgment? Isaiah chapter 14 is the story of how Satan reveal or, or rebels against God. And I want you to look at verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Lucifer became Satan. He was in heaven. He was the star son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, here's what he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. One more verse. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. So Satan rebels against God. He says, I'm going to be like God, and eventually I'm going to be God. And he got kicked out of heaven. Isaiah says, oh, how you have fallen. When he fell, look at what happened. Verse 4, Revelation 12. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. That dragon is Satan. The one-third of heaven that he took out were a third of the angels. These are the angels that Peter is talking about in chapter 2. They've been reserved for judgment. If you follow the story of Satan across the pages of Scripture, you will eventually meet someone that we call the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to be the counterfeit Christ during the tribulation period. He's going to be revealed after the rapture of the church during that first part of the tribulation. 
Uh, we won't go read it right now, but 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2. Write that down and go read it later. What you find is that during the tribulation period, a third temple is going to be built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Right now, there's a Muslim mosque that sits on that site where Solomon's temple was, that was the first one. Herod's temple, that's the second one, it was destroyed in AD 70. The Muslims took it over. They built what is called the Dome of the Rock. When you see the picture of Jerusalem, you will often see this golden dome sitting on the mount. That is a Muslim church, a mosque. There will be a third temple built on that site. You say, well, how's that going to happen? I don't know. I'm not on that committee. I'm not on the building committee. I don't know. Uh, I just know that that's what's going to happen. Here's what else I know. Midway through the tribulation period, three and a half years into the tribulation period, after the temple has been completed, the Antichrist will march himself up the mount, and he will march into the third temple. He will sit down on the throne, and he will declare himself to be God. That is Satan. What did Satan say he was going to do back in Isaiah? 2,700 years ago, Isaiah said, here's how all this happened. You follow the story through the remainder of Scripture, and we're headed in that direction. Now, I don't have time this morning to go through all. I could preach one whole sermon on the angels who fail and tell you about where they are and what's going on with them. I'm just reminding you that the angels who fail were swept out of heaven when Satan rebelled against God. False teachers throughout history and today provide us with some of the best examples of pride uh, to be found in the Bible. Their entire system. So when, what did Satan, go back and, and look at that Isaiah passage in Isaiah 14. Count the number of times you find the word I. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do, that's all pride. That is all pride. The entire system of false teaching is based on the folly of pride. And so they see themselves, these false teachers, and, and you can see it today among those who, I, listen, I watched, I couldn't stand to watch for about 10 minutes of it, but I watched a relatively local guy on TV yesterday who was preaching, supposedly, I never heard in that 10 minutes of time, I never heard the first verse of Scripture. I heard some cute little stories about some things that he had done in his life and some ways that he had counseled people to do this or to do that, but it was all about me and me and me and I. False teaching is always based on I, not based on Scripture. Uh, and it's popular. It's very popular. 
but they see themselves, these false teachers see themselves as a center of the universe. And as a result, they willfully rebel against God. They mutilate his people through deception and exploitation. And they end up calling people or causing people to stumble right into hell. When the host of angels followed Lucifer in his great rebellion against God, they were guilty of following the arch deceiver. And admittedly, this is even one of the great mysteries of the universe. Why in the world these angels had been created by God to serve him in heaven? They've been to heaven. They were in heaven. They've seen it. Why in the world would such enlightened beings choose to follow the supreme practitioner of lies and deceit? That is the question that will be forever unanswered in, in this life, at least until we get to heaven. But what I do know is they did. They rebelled against God, and we live with the results of their revolt today. Here's another mystery to me. Why do human beings who otherwise seem rational and stable, why do they blindly follow maniacal false teachers? For instance, why would an entire nation allow itself to become mesmerized by Adolf Hitler? The man was a devotee of the occult, he wantonly slaughtered six million Jews. He devastated the whole of Europe, and yet people followed him. Or why would more than 900 individuals line up in the jungles of Guyana in 1978 and drink Kool-Aid mixed with cyanide because Jim Jones told them to do it? He was a deeply disturbed cultist. You say, well, that surely wouldn't happen today. <laughs> Look at the nuts people are following today. A lot of them are in Washington, D.C., by the way. A lot of them run for president. And people follow them like they're the answer to all the world's problems. I don't have the answer to why. I don't know why that is. I do know this. Some people are willing to follow even if it means their own destruction. The second illustration that Peter uses is the unbelievers of Noah's day. So in verse 5, he says, not only did God not spare the, the angels, but he didn't spare the ancient world. But he saved Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. You remember that story. Generations following Adam became exceedingly sinful. Mankind grew worse and worse and worse. By the way, that's exactly what's happening today. Things are not getting better and better and better. They're getting worse and worse and worse. Finally, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the wickedness of man was so great, the Bible says, here's what it says, how it describes it. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only on, on evil continually. That's what had happened to God's creation. People lived in gross immorality. Murder, crime, cruelty, lust, injustice abounded everywhere except for one man and his family, Noah. 
And so except for Noah and his family, the entire race was dominated by sin and evil. So God acted in judgment. And he intervened in the affairs of men, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Everybody was destroyed except Noah, his family. So what do you notice about this? As you move from illustration number one, which was the angels who fell, to illustration number two, and that's Noah, you now find that God judges with discrimination. He judges with discrimination. Peter says, the Lord did not spare the ancient world, but he saved Noah. Verse 5, Noah, his wife, Noah's three sons, their wives, all were saved from a watery death. Again, Genesis 6 tells us why Noah was saved. Noah was a just man, Genesis 6, 9, and perfect in his generations, Noah walked with God. Because of that, the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He and his family were singled out. The rest of mankind was destroyed. In the ark, in the place of safety, the only place where you could have been in that time and be saved was inside the ark of God. In that ark, they rode out the storm of God's wrath while all the wicked people of the earth were judged and condemned. I go back and think about Noah a lot because for 120 years, 120 years, all the time that that ship was being built, the people of that evil generation were laughing at Noah. It had never rained, you remember that part. Why in the world would you build a boat in the middle of where he's building it when there's no water to sail it on and it's never rained and here's this man who's building a boat and generation after generation and the Bible says that he was a preacher of righteousness. So I get from that that as he's building that ark, what is he doing? He's witnessing to the people who are coming by. He is pleading with them. He is asking them to repent. He is warning them about the impending flood, the impending judgment that's going to come. But they didn't believe him. They didn't believe it. And then one day, God said, Noah is done. Grab your wife, grab your kids. Get in the ark. And the Bible says that God closed the door. All those people standing around, banging on, hey, Noah, 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 uh, remember me? I'm your cousin. I'm your brother. I'm related to you. Let me in. Noah said, I can't let you in. Why not? Because I can't open the door. God closed the door. And the waters rose higher and higher. Righteous Noah and his family were safe. All other human beings perished. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. Here's what Jesus says about that. He says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Write this down. 
We are living in that day. And there will be people, maybe some in this room, maybe some who will watch this later on online, who will say, ah, there he goes. There he goes, talking about the end of time, trying to scare people. I don't believe it. We've been through 2,000 years. I just don't believe. One day, one day, God's going to say, enough, enough. It's over. The last Gentile will be saved. And the Lord will come and we'll be raptured to be with him forever. And I believe that day is coming soon. Again, I don't have time to go through all the signs that we see. I'll give you one because it's in the news today. Keep your eyes on Vladimir Putin. The book of Ezekiel tells us that there is going to be a war that is going to take place in which Russia and her allies will come and try to destroy the nation of Israel. Nobody's mentioning this yet because it hadn't gotten that far. But did you ever think that you would live to see the day when we would be talking about whether or not Germany would remain in NATO? Again, I don't have time for all of this. I'm just going to whet your appetite with it. They're talking about on the news today that Germany, because they get all of their energy from Russia, is now having to decide whether or not they want to remain in NATO. Germany pulls out of NATO. Let's just say they do that. I don't know whether they will or they won't, but that's possible. Listen, now we get into Daniel, and we begin talking about the ten toes in Daniel's vision and the ten nations who are going to be the revival of the Roman Empire. That is the uh, European Union, in my view, you say there's more than 10 countries in the European Union right now. Not if they start pulling out to join other places, and then Russia's doing what Russia's. One day God's going to say, enough, enough. All this business of us being haphazard in our service of God. And Christians in America are being subjected today to ridicule and resentment unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. Only a few years ago, Bible-believing preachers in America were respected. Today, we are the beneficiaries of being labeled as society's undesirable element. Matthew 24 tells us what lies ahead for a generation that is condemned to repeat what it has refused to learn. The people who are taken away. You remember Jesus talks about that there's going to be two at the meal. One's going to be taken away, the other left. That is not, now listen to me, that is not talking about the rapture. There are a lot of preachers who preach that, that when the one is taken and the other one's left, that they're talking about the rapture. That's not what that's about. 
because he's just said in the days of Noah, so it's going to be when the coming of the sun. I believe that they're being taken away. The one who's taken away is being taken away to face the judgment of God. As in the days of Noah. In other words, you and I had better learn the lessons from the days of Noah before it is everlastingly too late. A husband and wife are going to be seated at the breakfast table. One's going to be taken, the other one's left. And we've always, not we, because I don't, a lot of people say, well, that just means one's gone to heaven, the other one wasn't saved. No, God has decided who's going to be judged as in the days of Noah. Do your research, and that's what that passage means. It's not about the rapture. It's about the judgment of God. Here's the third illustration. Sodom and Gomorrah. Verses 6 and 7, according to Ezekiel, the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of pride and immorality. Ezekiel 16, 50, the prophet said, they were haughty and they committed abomination before me. Even today, the term sodomite has a connotation of perversion, gross immorality, gross evil. The people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah had become exceedingly depraved, especially in matters of sexual behavior. They had no concern for the Word of God. They had no concern for the principles of God. And so as a result, God sends a holocaust of destruction to Sodom and Gomorrah. Cities were turned into ashes. You do not know where they are today, is that correct? Nobody here knows where Sodom and Gomorrah, I know where they are, by the way. They are at the bottom of the Dead Sea. That's where Sodom and Gomorrah would have been located. Well, they are buried, the, the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah today are buried under the Dead Sea. I've, I swam in the Dead Sea, those of you who've been to uh, Israel with me, we swam in the Dead Sea. What happens in the Dead Sea? You float because it's dead. There's no water, there's a water supply coming in. There's not a water supply going out. It's dead. Part of that is because of what lies underneath it. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And just like the people of Noah's day, God judges with discrimination. In punishing these two wicked cities, he distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous. Peter reminds us that even though Lot was living in a backslidden condition, he couldn't be comfortable there. He wasn't happy. Listen, a Christian who lives in a backslidden condition is never happy. They're never happy. Now, they're always blaming somebody else for their problems. They're always, they've always got a reason why this and why that, but they're never happy because they do not live in a right relationship with God. Well, a child of God can never be at peace in that kind of wicked environment. That's the reason he was rescued before the fire and brimstone fell. And so Lot becomes an example of verse 9. Verse 9 says, The Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations, and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. 
before the judgments fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened to Lot? God rescued him. God took him out of that. God's wrath, which was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah, demonstrates what's happened when unbridled evil runs its course. These cities serve as a reminder to us that when people fail to recognize God and his word, there's a fatal price to pay. The time comes when the cup is full and God says, I'm done. One of the most ominous statements in the Bible to me is found in the first chapter of Romans, verse number 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. I wonder if that's not what is happening to America today. The things that we tolerate that never would have been tolerated 10 years ago, 15 years ago. In these days of increasing heresy, it is important for you and me to remember three illustrations. Three illustrations the angels cast out of heaven. Noah and the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah. Beware. Beware of anybody who ridicules the clear teaching of Scripture that judgment is coming. Don't follow them. The Bible is very clear. God is going to one day judge everybody according to his works. So let me conclude with two vital facts that are essential, I think, for us to remember. Let's conclude with a little good news. How about that? Here's the first thing. The compassion of God is going to result in the rescue of all believers. The compassion of God is going to result in the rescue of all believers. God allows temptation in our lives so that he can bring us through it, not because he plans to leave us in it. One day the rapture is going to take place and God is going to deliver his own out of this world at which time the tribulation will begin and there will be a judgment of God. And it's going to be unlike anything anybody has ever seen in the history of the world. And ladies and gentlemen, you do not want to be here for that. You do not want to be here to experience the judgment of God. I actually have had people tell me on occasion that, well, I'll just take my chances and if it turns out you're right, as soon as the rapture is over with, I'll get saved. No, you won't. No, you won't. You won't have any more chances. There, are no, there will be no more chances for you. You, if you remain after the rapture, you will follow the Antichrist. You'll be, you'll be putting signs in your yard. 
You'll be campaigning for him. You'll be saying he's going to save us from our uh, depravity. And you will eventually wind up in hell. But if you're a believer, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and I mean you know him. I don't mean you're a member of somebody's church. I don't believe. I don't mean you go every once in a while. I believe that it means that you are a full-fledged, born-again, Bible-believing, serving God Christian in this world. He's going to take you out. And it is because of his grace that he's going to do that, not because you deserve it. It's because of his grace and his mercy and his compassion. And before that judgment begins, we will be gone. But the judgment of God is going to result in the punishment of unbelievers. The compassion of God, you remember I gave you two pictures of God at the beginning, one you'd like to hang in the living room, one you want to hang in the back room somewhere where nobody sees it. The compassion of God is going to deliver the believers out of this world. The judgment of God ensures that unbelievers will be punished. Rather than receiving the loving embrace of our Heavenly Father, we're going to receive the judicial impartiality of a righteous judge. Be sure. Be sure that you escape the eternal condemnation by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ 